Welcome to another broadcast of Hope for the Heart. My name is William Rogers, and I'm continuing my verse-by-verse study through the book of Revelation, and today I am in Revelation chapter 19, verses 17 and 18. I may can get further than that, but I'm going to try to stick to 17 and 18. And I've entitled this message today, The Great Supper of God. And uh, this is a very interesting passage, to say the least. It's one that needs to be clarified uh, as best that, that we can in order to understand what's going on here. So I want to read these verses to you. If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to read uh, with me as I read uh, chapter 19 of Revelation, beginning in verse 17. The Word of God says, And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he, carried, he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God. In order that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men, and slaves, and small, and great. Well, I think you can see real quick, just by reading those two verses, it probably needs some clarification. It is called, I want to draw this out very quickly, it is called the Great Supper of God. Now, it is a supper that God is calling together, but it is not a supper you want to attend. Because if you are there at this supper, you are, the go- you are going to be the one eaten. You are not going to be the one eating. You will be the supper for the birds of the air. And so that, is, uh, that would make it a very interesting thing. So you do not want to be at this supper. You want to be at the supper mentioned earlier in this chapter. And that is the uh, the armies in heaven, which are clothed in fine linen. Uh, those are the that's the group that you want to be with, uh, beginning in chapter nineteen, uh, verses uh, six through uh, nine. And you can read that there. It's the it's the uh, marriage supper of the Lamb, and we're going to talk about that just in a minute. But I want to uh, uh, go ahead and talk about this passage because it is so difficult. Uh, This is uh, the text that is given to us today. As we look together at God's precious word, it describes for us the end of man's day. Uh, That's not hard to see. Most people realize Revelation 19 is describing that. It describes the effect of the return of Jesus Christ to the earth in judgment. Uh, It also describes for us the final execution of all the ungodly people on the earth at that time including the death of the Antichrist, the false prophet, who are Satan's world's leaders in the end time. But what makes this so difficult is that there are so many events at this particular time. For example, I've got one writer here who calls this the very moment of the Christ's return. That's what this is talking about. And he tends to uh, make you think that there's only one thing happening when the return of Christ happens, and that is the return. But that's not necessarily true. John doesn't see all that is taking place, or he doesn't list everything for us as we would like to see them as listed as events and perhaps some kind of chronological order. That's the way we'd like to see it laid out. We'd like for John to say, now, before the return of Christ, uh, two months before, you're going to see this, then you're going to see this, and then this is going to happen, and then you're going to get right up to the day, and this is going to happen, and then this is going to happen. But those of you who study prophecy know it just doesn't come like that, especially the book of Revelation. 
But as you know, this is the moment of the return of Christ. This is that moment, and that moment can last uh, a little while. Uh, it can be a lot of things going on in that moment. This is just one of the things that he's listing here, the Great Supper of God. And uh, that is, a, uh, like I say, a terrible time to be, uh, to be uh, present. Uh, you don't want to be there at that particular time. So the tremendous impact of the return against the nations who have gathered to war against Christ is what's being described here. It is the day, the precise day that was spoken of by the psalmist, and we've mentioned this several times. And when you look at Psalm 2, uh, you have a prophecy of the, this very event where it says, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a useless thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's what Psalm 2 is talking about. This particular thing here, which is the end of the Battle of Armageddon, which is, is called by many writers. <clears throat> so there you have the battle scene. The nations of the world, the kings of the earth, the rulers coming together to fight against the Lord. Now, Psalm calls this devising a useless thing. And when you look at it, it certainly is a useless thing. Who in their right mind would want to do or take part in anything like this? To gather to fight against the Lord and against his anointed, who is, of course, the Messiah. And the response of heaven is given to us. Uh, it says, let us tear their fetters apart, uh, cast away their cords from us. In other words, if they try to bring about this battle, uh, we will shatter such an effort. And that's what we see here. The Battle of Armageddon actually is not fought. Now, they may try to fight against God, but they will be killed immediately. And then it says this, He who sits in the heavens, that's God, <coughs> laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. God laughs. God installs his king, the Messiah, on the throne of David. Then verse 7 of Psalm 2 says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, Thou art my son. Today have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as thy possession. That is, <clears throat> he will make him the ruler of the world. And so as we get to this time when the Christ return, when Christ returns, uh, we have seen so many things. It's like, wow, all of this is going to happen. And it's like I, I mentioned earlier, it would be great if we had it laid out in chronological order, but nobody can. It's just too many things, and uh, the, the, much of it, it would be overlapping one another. For example, the separation of the people that's got to take place, where, where we see the sheep-goat judgment, which we're going to talk about here briefly, is included in this. This is man's last day. Uh, day can be a relative term. It can be a, a period of time, or it can be uh, one 24-hour day. But there's a lot going on here. Then you have the, the, the death that is going to be caused from Christ's actual return at the Battle of Armageddon. The effect of his, his return, which we see in, in Revelation chapter 16. The effect is his feet touch the Mount of Olives and how that separates the land and the mountain and the fresh water that will be flowing through there, and the, and the earth getting ready for this millennial kingdom, and the earth being returned to its, uh, its, its state before sin entered the world. 
It's going to be a beautiful thing. But at the same time, or just before that, the earth is going through complete devastation. When you read chapter 16 of Revelation, it is a, a very frightening thing to think that there are people living, especially as that seventh bowl is poured out upon the earth. A loud voice comes out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there's flashes of lightning, peals of thunder, and an earthquake such as there has never been since upon since people have been on the earth. It's going to be the worst earthquake ever in the history of the earth is going to be happening at that moment. There again, it is the moment of Christ's return. So there are so many things happening. This is just one thing we're looking at, and it gets to be confusing sometimes because we've looked at so many. When we we hit Revelation 16, we looked at these things. And then you see in, also in Revelation 16 that uh, the great city was split into three parts and then every island was, uh, was, was brought or leveled to, the, to, the, to ground level. The mountains were not found. The huge hailstones, which uh, were weighed 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail because its plague was extremely severe. Well, all of that has just happened. And so the world is in such a chaotic state. But then even on top of that, you have in, in Revelation 16, you have uh, the sixth bowl poured out of the Euphrates River was dried up and the way might be prepared for the kings of the east. You have these kings and rulers marching over to uh, the Valley of Megiddo to fight God what in the world would cause them to come in such haste after such devastation has just hit the earth? Why would they be so focused on what this plan is, and that is to come together and try to fight God when they've just seen what God did to the earth? Now you talk about a useless thing. You talk about being blind. You talk about being foolish or ridiculous as, uh, as as you can be, that would be that. But you got to understand, at the same time here, there is a mass uh, demonic influence. In fact, we see that in Revelation 16. Uh, I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. This is the, uh, the, the uh, Antichrist and his uh, false prophet. Uh, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons performing signs. They go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. That's what is behind this. That's why they're so focused. Because they are being convinced by these demon entities that they are to come together over near Jerusalem, in Israel, the valley of Megiddo, and fight God there and overtake him. That's what is behind this. And so we are seeing the effect now when we get to Revelation chapter 19, we are seeing that. We are seeing that as it is it is they're coming and as they're approaching and as they're probably already there. We don't know with the exact scene because it doesn't tell us that, but it tells us that when heaven opens up in verse 11, uh, it says down here that, that, that his appearance is made known and then it describes him, which is what we looked at last time. And then it says in verse 15, out of his mouth 
comes a sharp sword so that he will smite the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. And then it says in verse 17, which is where we are now, it's talking about this supper. Well, what is this supper? This supper is an extraordinary event also at this moment uh, that, that, like I said, you do not want to be at this supper because you are going to be the one consumed by the birds of the air. Look at what, how it says this. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and we're going to take a look at that in just a minute, but obviously standing at a place where he can be seen. Now, we know from Revelation 16, again, we're going to keep referencing Revelation 16 because there's darkness upon the earth. Uh, the, in, beginning in verse 10 of Revelation 16, uh, darkness was poured out upon the throne of the beast in this kingdom and, and they gnawed their teeth and because of the pain and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pain and their sores and they did not repent of this but there is darkness over the earth in such a way that it's complete black. Well, look at this angel here. He's standing in the sun. So is this just before that goes out? Is it just before the sun goes out or is he standing... Uh, Maybe he's blocking the sun. We, we don't really know much about that other than what it actually tells us here. But it says he is standing in the sun. And then we know he's not literally standing on top of the uh, the planet, of the sun itself, because he would be, uh, well, that, I don't think that would be. You couldn't even see him. But the sun is uh, is represented here. And then he cried out with a loud voice. Who's crying out? Well, the angel's crying out saying to all of the birds which fly in mid-heaven. It's a command to come. That is a command given here, a symbol for the great supper of God. So, this great supper of God is a supper offered to the birds to eat the dead flesh in contrast to the great supper earlier in the chapter, back in verse 9, called the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's the supper you want to be a part of. That's the one where believers, just after the rapture, will take part in that. Now, what a contrast. The marriage supper of the, lion, the Lamb, a time of joy, a time of rejoicing, a time of reward, a time of blessing, and the great supper of God, a time of terrifying death. And of course, once they're dead, the birds begin to eat, peck away on their flesh. So, what a horrible thing. But it's the culmination and the climax and that final moment to which this is called the day of the Lord. Now, this graphic description which is seen here is not the first such description in Scripture. In fact, uh, Isaiah saw something like this in, in Isaiah 66. <clears throat> he wrote this, For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire, for the Lord will execute judgment by fire and by his sword on all flesh. Joel also sees this. So it's not only seen by Isaiah, but listen to Joel as he talks about this. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Well, this is at that moment. And this must be before the supper, 
But yet John doesn't mention this in Revelation 19, but this is listed, and we see it in Joel, we see it in Isaiah, we see it in Matthew. Uh, and by the way, this valley of decision, it's a very interesting thing. You almost make a, decision, a, a sermon based on the valley of decision there in Joel chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. It's not a decision to be made by man. In other words, when Christ is there and it says he will sit to judge all the surrounding nations, it is, it is a decision already made by God. It's the day when God renders his decision. In other words, he lets the people know what his decision is. When God brings in his verdict, God is the decider here. It's not for man to make any decision there except to hear it. The sun and the moon, writes Joe, grow dark and the stars lose their brightness and the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth tremble. That's the day that is to come. That's the day of verse 21 says, God avenging blood. That's the judgment. Ezekiel saw the same thing. God allowed Ezekiel to see this and to write about this. And some don't see this as the same thing, but it's very similar in Ezekiel chapter 39. Uh, so we can see this in different places. The New Testament, the Apostle Paul spoke of it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Jude speaks of it in verses 14 and 15. Jesus speaks of it in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. And there we call that the judgment of nations or the sheep goat judgment. And so there are a number of other passages that give us previews of the very descriptive event described here in Revelation chapter 19. And there again, it's hard to place all of these things as side by side or in the right exact order because I think they happen so fast. Order is not going to be an issue. Order is not even going to be something considered. It's just going to be boom, 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 and they happen all of these passages are pictures of the same kind of judgment, this coming end-time judgment. And it is uh, very interesting to see this. There are various phases of it, various aspects of it, but all those prophecies look forward to these judgments at the end time, at the time of the return of Jesus Christ. And so when we say it's at the moment of the return of Christ, we, we're saying there's a lot of events there. There's a lot of things happening there. We don't know how much time it's going to be in order for all of these things to happen, but we do know that there is a, uh, the, the final perspective on that destruction is being described here. We see it in part here. We see it in part in Isaiah. We see part of it in Joel. We see part in Daniel. We see part in Matthew and Luke. Uh, Thessalonians tells us part. So, <clears throat> I can't clarify in your minds exactly what is going on here. But I can say this. This is not the final judgment. This is an execution. Uh, and I know that's hard because we think of execution as that is the judgment. But the execution is an execution. For example, those people who die, they're not going to be... The final judgment will be the great white throne judgment. And that's not happening yet. That will be much later at the end of the kingdom which will be a thousand years later. Uh, so we know that uh, you, you don't really understand all that is here as far as the timing, as far as the sequence, as far as even every aspect of all this. But you put all of these together and you've got some kind of a picture. 
These people here are simply being executed in Revelation chapter 19, verses 17 and 18. They'll be judged in a thousand years after the millennial kingdom. So that will be their final judgment. They are being executed here, and their execution is being described here. Uh, the ungodly sinners of the world who have sided with Satan during the time of the tribulation, all who have sided with the Antichrist, who have taken his mark, who have worshipped him, who have continuously rejected the gospel. And God comes down and, and they're dead. They're gone. All these multitudes that Joel says are in the valley of decision are not there to make a decision. They are there to hear a decision that God has made. The judge has decided and this is the execution day. So you see how hard it would be to lay this out as to that valley of decision when Christ comes, does that happen first, and then this uh, Armageddon, and then he kills those people, and then he calls together the great supper, and lets the bird feast on their flesh. Uh, it would be You could lay it out probably in a way that we could at least understand it, but we don't know exactly how all of that's going to happen. But this judgment that's talked about here, I mean, before this even happens, there's got to be a separation of the people. So you look at that in Matthew chapter 25. And it's important that we understand Matthew 25 in order to actually get this implication. Uh, <clears throat> and so I want to talk about that for just a, a, a minute. First of all, we find the setting of the judgment is described in verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in His glory. There it is right there. And that ties us right into Revelation chapter 19. It's right at the same time when he comes. And when he comes with all the angels with him, and we saw that exactly how he's going to do that prior in the pre previous passage. And then he will sit on his glorious throne. He comes out of heaven with his holy ones, sits up and sets up his kingdom. And at that point, all the nations gather before him and he will separate them one from another. We move from the setting of the judgment to the separation. And that's what he does. He's going to separate all the people of the world. Now, there's people all over the world. They're not going to just all be gathered in the Valley of Decision unless he brings them there. Does it say he's going to bring them there? No, but it doesn't say he's not. So we don't really know. He's going to separate. He's going to divide. And if we move from the separation to the next point, we'll see the subjects. And the subjects are the sheep and the goats. Well, he's got to explain that in Matthew 25. So Jesus is going to come. He's going to come as a judge. He's going to come and establish his throne. He's going to come with all of his saints and angels with him. He's going to come back and separate the people of the earth. He's separating in order that he might take into his kingdom the godly and that he might execute the ungodly. Now, <clears throat> this is what we alluded to last week. There are people that are going to be on this earth during the whole tribulation period that are going to live through it that are, are going to be become Christians or believers, and they're going to make it through the tribulation period. They're going to be standing right here at this sheep-goat judgment, and they are going to be considered sheep, and God is going to bring them over. In fact, let's just see how it happens. Look at verse 32. It says, all the nations, all the peoples. Take the word nations, and uh, he just means that from all the people of the earth will be there. It doesn't mean they're going to be judged collectively. In other words, it won't say as a nation judge the people. It's still an individual judgment. Heaven, salvation, hell, 
uh, is always individualized. What he's going to do is judge everybody in the world, all the peoples, all kinds of people from all kinds of places and cultures and languages and nations, and he's going to judge all of them. I don't want you to think this judgment is a collective group of people. He's not going to take a group and judge them and then deal with another group. That's not the way this is going to happen. This is a judgment on individuals from every people uh, around the uh, around the globe who have continually rejected the gospel. It is a separation of the people and a judgment of separation. So how is he going to work? How is he going to identify these people? He separates them. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left, and the king is going to speak to both groups. The king will say to those on his right, this is the right side, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That means before Genesis 1. This is the valley of Jehoshaphat. Uh, Multitudes are there. Christ has come. He's coming down. The valley of Jehoshaphat has to has got to be, we don't know exactly where it is, it's got to be, a, it's not a historical term, it must be in the valley that the Lord creates when he hits the Mount of Olives and creates that instantaneous valley there. So I don't think it's there yet, but it will be there. In that moment when he comes to destroy the wicked, he's going to judge, place have judgment there, and it's described here. He takes a little while to describe it. It doesn't take but a little while for it to happen. I don't think... I think it probably happens faster than we can probably read about it. But he separates the sheep. The sheep he doesn't kill. This is what I want to emphasize. He doesn't kill the sheep. They're believers. They're in their flesh and blood just like we are today. They're in their flesh and blood. They have seen an awful lot. They have felt a lot. They have probably all been hungry, uh, destitute, no clothing perhaps, no water Uh, They are probably uh, skin and bones. They have been through a lot. But he says to them, the sheep he doesn't kill, they stay right on the earth, and therefore they are going to go right into the kingdom with Christ. They are the ones then who populate the kingdom. They will be Jews, of course, because many Jews will have been converted. In fact, you've got the 144,000, you know, that are going to be standing right there. They're going to go right into the kingdom. They've been protected. You remember that in Revelation 7? And there will be many Gentiles, an innumerable number that have already been converted at the time of tribulation. Many of them have been martyred, executed, but still some of them are alive. And these are the alive ones. And so the sheep or the saints will just remain there and go into the kingdom. These will be the living people in the kingdom. But there is something else to to look at here. So the sheep or the saints remain alive. He doesn't execute them, obviously. Why would he kill them? If they're still alive, they've been preserved. And we know from Revelation 12 that Israel will be preserved. So he's got his preserved people to go marching right into the kingdom. And so... You have many groups brought into the kingdom in order they might produce their own kind. So there will be flesh and blood in the kingdom. Now, if we if 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 the rapture were not to happen and the tribulation started, we would want to be in that group to survive the tribulation and go right into the kingdom. So he takes those who believe they are left with the kingdom. These are only believers. In other words, all people going into the kingdom are going to be believers. There will be no 
unbelievers, all the ungodly are going to be destroyed at this time. The believers are called sheep, and that's consistent, uh, we think, with the terminology used by John, especially in John 10. Put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now, any good shepherd had to do that because sheep, uh, one writer says, sheep tend to be docile and gentle. Goats tend to be unruly and rambunctious. Well, that's going to be the, the group there. So you've got some living people on the earth to enjoy the fulfillment of that prophecy in their natural condition. And so the believers will go right into the kingdom and it's initiated right here at this judgment. The criteria that he gives begins in verse 35. Uh, how, how do you know what, what's a sheep? I mean, how do you tell the sheep? And he says, I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger. And he goes on. This is during the time of the tribulation. They're going to be believing people who are not going to have any food. Why? Because they don't have the mark of the beast. And so there are going to be other Christians that are going to have ways to have food or help, and they're going to help. They're actually going to help. They're not going to be, uh, they're going to be very thirsty. They can't get anything to drink. They're going to give them drink. They're going to be strangers. They're not going to have access to the place to stay because they're outcasts. They're not going to be, they're going to be hunted people. They're going to be, uh, they're going to have to be refugees. They're going to have to hide and save their lives. They're going to need clothes. They're going to need uh, to have care when they're sick. Somebody's going to need to tend to them. And they're going to be incarcerated in prisons by the system of the Antichrist. So somebody's going to minister to them. And you ask the simple question, well, who will it be? And I'll tell you who it will be. It will be the other believers People who are Christians, didn't Jesus say in John 13, 35, those, they will know us by our love? Didn't he say, that obviously, that if you love one another, uh, you will know by this because they, they are my disciples? Jesus is simply saying the sheep are the ones who have evidenced the regeneration life by the love of the brother. John says it in his epistle. If you say you love God and you don't love your brother, you're what? You're a liar. And so what he's saying is that these people, now if you don't read this correctly or don't think about this correctly, you're going to think that these people are being saved because they helped believers. But that's not the case. Them helping believers is evidence of their regeneration, not earning their regeneration. And so what he is saying is that the only way these people would actually do that is because of the new heart God put inside, their, inside of them. They are going to have a new heart and they are going to help these people because they are fellow believers. They are brethren. They are the love of the brethren. And Christ says that is that superior love that he gives. And so we see this. But then he takes the last of these ones received. He treats us in the same way by putting them on the left. But he doesn't treat them the same, I mean. He puts them a little bit different. He says, I was hungry. You gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me no drink. Uh, these are not saved by their good works, uh, the ones on the right. The left, they're not going to hell because of their bad works. Uh, so it, it's, a very, it's, it's evidence of salvation or evidence of the lack of salvation is what we're seeing here. And so the sheep go into the kingdom and, and the good deeds are the evidence of their salvation. Verse 41, those on the left, these are the goats. They represent the unregenerate. Uh, he says, depart, you accursed ones, to the internal fire 
or eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Why? I was hungry. And he goes through the whole scenario. And they will answer him and say, when? And then he will say it as uh, you did not do this even to the least of them. You did not do it for me. So there's evidence of their unregenerate heart. And they will all be killed. So at this time of the separation, God takes the life of all unbelievers, all the ungodly. He says the sheep are going into the kingdom. The ungodly are going to be sent into the everlasting fire. And so this is a look, this Revelation chapter 19, verses 17 and 18. This is the death of the unbelievers here. This is their death and their destruction as evidenced by the uh, sword that came out of his mouth, the killing by his word. There'll be no fighting here. There's no weapons drawn. It's just simply the word of God kills all of these unbelievers who happen to be drawn together to fight God. That's what this great supper is. In fact, we'll have to finish this next time. We'll take a look at exactly how that happens. I hope this is helpful. Uh, chronologically, it helps a little bit because you can see some of the events laid out, but we can't lay them all out. There's so many. In fact, I've got a note here, a list of every single thing that I've read about all that's going to happen right here in this time frame, and I've got 37 things listed. So that tells you this is only one, the Great Supper. And yet you can see it's, uh, it, there's other things that has to happen before the Supper can take place. And then after the Supper, what happens? So you can see how intricate this is and detailed it is. But I thank you today for joining me. I thank you for listening and being a part of this uh, broadcast of Hope for the Heart. As we continue to look at our verse-by-verse -verse study of the book of Revelation, thank you again for joining me.